the legendary Marvin Gaye there, Mercy, Mercy Me. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are the Reverend Josephine Inkpen. We also chat with author Ros Bellamy and Liam Elphick from the Victorian Pride Lobby joins us. But we do have Reverend Josephine Inkpen on the line. Josephine, welcome to the show. Hi, it's lovely to be with you. It's so great to have you on the show, Josephine. Uh, You're from the Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney. It must be an incredibly busy time for you during lockdown, reaching out to people. Yeah, well, it's changed things a little bit. I mean, we're quite a busy church, as it is in the centre of Sydney, and as a place which offers a safe community, and not just safe, but hopefully a little bit flourishing, (laughs) Um, the impact of pandemic varies uh, amongst people, so we've been trying to get yeah, to get support for people and um, yeah, keep in touch really, and explore the opportunities there are for electronic communications and that sort of thing. Of course, uh, before lockdown hit, you spoke at the rally in Sydney, the Kill the Bills rally, uh, against Mark Latham's education bill and also religious freedom bill. It got a huge reaction. Uh, what kinds of things did you talk about? Ah, uh, well, the fact, I mean, with the, um, with the Latham bills are particularly obnoxious, and not least the education one, which um, sort of levers in attacks on transgender people. And then the process has been appalling um, because uh, hardly any trans people were called at all to give testimony, but um, that's flying a kite. And the, the Latham other bill, I think, is is sits alongside the other push that's being made federally as well to try and um, get um, not just protections, but really powers to discriminate against other people. And people of faith, I mean, it's quite an existential challenge for us, I think, a lot of people of faith at the moment, because I think the aim is really to try and eliminate us from, um, you know, spiritual religious quarters, really, in a way, so that they can claim um, the sort of moral authority or high ground that they like to think they've got. You must be really concerned about the division uh, between people of faith and uh, and the LGBTIQ community and people who sit in both camps, I guess, that, that Mark Latham's bills are unnecessarily, you know, c- trying to provoke, it seems. Yes, well, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. It's um, in Most binaries are pretty bananas, really, to think about. And um, so it's sort of like, you know, it's the God versus the gays sort of thing, um, which is pretty nonsensical, really. Um, Although there are serious issues that um, the mainstream religions, most parts of them have to face up to. And the the horrors that have been inflicted on queer people over the centuries, really, that that needs owning up to and, and putting right. So... That's what that's building on a bit. I think it's also that that some of that that sort of the Christian right, particularly, and trying to use elements of other faiths, um, have they've changed their tack. You know, whereas before they were sort of wanting defensive things, this is a sort of an aggressive push, really, by sections of the community, the Christian community, which doesn't actually sit with the majority of where um, Christians are. I think that you know the stats show that most Christians are wanting fair play for everybody. So, But it does make it particularly difficult for people of faith. And of course, lots of people of faith have found it difficult. <laughs> um, queer people of faith sometimes have found it more awkward in, in some quarters of the queer community to come out as you know, people of faith as well as within the 
faith community. So it's getting a little easier in the faith community. And I think there's a change happening in the broader queer community, not to accept, you know, religion at all in, on all terms, but to recognise that um, people who feel and have been drawn in, um, out of their faith in their faith identity is is something that goes to the core of them, isn't just sort of an added add-on, as it were, just a mere belief, but but something to do with their experience and their identity. So that should strengthen the queer community as well once we sort of accept our and affirm our, our amazing diversity. Of course, you're in a wonderful position where you've you've transitioned, but you've also got a deep understanding of theology as a as a minister of religion. Tell us about how that's intersected and the insights it's given you. Yes, well, it's <laughs> it's quite a, a challenge, really. In a way, I think to some degree, and and it's true of some transgender priests. In um, we've got another couple in in Australia have just come out, and but overseas as well is that. In a way, I think sometimes it we, strangely might seem odd to some people, but um, the religious space is a space in which actually you could be. There are elements of queerness, and we won't need to go into it length. But some of the, you know, I mean, the classic doctrines of Christian faith, you know, that Jesus is both divine and human. However, you understand that, that's a pretty weird one, and a pretty queer one, and you know, that born of a born of a virgin, how does that work? Well, you can't really treat it literally, in my opinion. But all of that stuff, um, you know, shows that the faith world is actually quite more mysterious than it seems. So I think that's part of what sort of attracted me in a way, and it was a space for me to be, in a way, sat as, um, you know, signed male, that the role, I mean, they used to talk years ago of, of the clergy being a sort of like a third sex or third gender because um the roles of clergy certainly in the sort of anglican world i was brought up in um enable you to sort of operate in a more sort of feminine way but of course that's really not sufficient um so i was brought up in a very you know sort of binary way i say you know when they taught us the three r's at school they before that they'd already taught us the the binary, you know, the gender binary, you know, from the moment they blew a whistle the first time I was at school and they put us in two lines and some of us were sort of a bit baffled as to why we had to choose and found that a little difficult and then we were put inside and you started to learn gender things. So that's a, that's a great, and that's partly reinforced by certain religious understandings. I think church, some of the churches are now trying to sort of reinstate that. But actually, um, yeah, my spirit, spirituality has helped me to survive, but but, you know, it comes to point for, for a lot of us when, you know, we have to choose, which is the fundamental sort of spiritual choice, to choose life or death. Um, and sometimes that means, you know, rejecting religion or these parts of it. So I've been quite blessed being in um, parts of the Anglican Church initially in southern Queensland, which, you know, unevenly and, and a little bit stutteringly was able to sort of accommodate me and take that on and then from that position then I've been able to sort of help other people so I'm, I'm delighted to be in back in Sydney near to my family in, in the Uniting Church um, in a you know in a position which has been held by other queer people in the past who've been a little bit of beacon of hope so that's my you know my feeling is we're, we're well beyond the days of trying to fight just to justify our, our existence as people of faith, uh, queer people of faith, and we need to be moving forward and, you know, speaking out loud and proud. But it's more difficult in some places than others, sadly. 
of course, you're in the wondrous position where your partner is a minister of religion and has, you know, been mm. with you throughout your transition. That's, that's a beautiful story. What can you tell us about that? Well, it is quite an amazing one. And, and to be honest, um, you know, and Penny, because um, I imagine another one, and that's an interesting thing now, because, of course, Dowike sort of expect, whereas, you know, we were emotionally anyway seen as a sort of the perfect couple, you know, heterosexual couple with two kids at one point, um, seemingly. Um, now we're sort of pretty outraged, and we wouldn't be able to be married. In <laughs> Weirdly, we were married in the Anglican Church, and Thank God the cathedral up in Brisbane last year actually renewed our wedding, you know, and blessed us as well, if that's possible. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't be actually able to be formally married. So we're causing a bit of a ruction there and asking people questions about this sort of mar- these stupid marriage division they've got in some places still. But she's been wonderful. I mean, she, uh, during the time I tried to suppress my gender identity, I mean, she knew that... Um, you know, it was bad for me, and and we, you know, we, she discovered this very early on. Um, so she's been part of that journey, and she is sort of a, a great strength, and and that's been um, been been brilliant. But I mean, we started off, you see, as well. when we, when I we started off, um, women weren't allowed to be ordained in Anglican a lot of Anglican churches, in, and they still aren't in Sydney, sadly. But they. Um, in England, we were part of the struggle for women's ordination. Um, so that was part of our sort of a growing up experience. And we've been sort of pioneers in other ways. We were the first married couple. Of, my wife was first, well, second woman in the Church of England to receive maternity leave. That was a bit of a challenge for the church at that point. So we've been a sort of uh, part of that journey and sort of working through those things and I think it's that's where we are with the trans space as well now is that thank God for feminism in a way and for the you know for initially for for what was lesbian and gay movement opened up the doors a bit and and transgender people are sort of the little sister who's now sort of poking up as well and um uh, and bringing you know fresh insights but fresh disturbance for the you know people who are still trying to repress us it sounds like you've found yourself in a position throughout life where you've been perhaps unintentionally a trailblazer. What are your thoughts <laughs> yes. on that? Yes, well, I think that's the case. I mean, I think I've been on the threshold for lots of and And I think that's one of the gifts, you see, of of, um, of queer people, actually, in, in uh, of faith, because we're sometimes in a sort of a, a threshold position between, you know, we're, we're, we're both within some things and not, and um, we're both one thing and and another and we just can't always be pinned down too much so and that's given me a lot of opportunity really i think because as a trans person to be able to understand how to to be a little bit of a bridge builder sometimes and a and a challenger so i've worked in a lot of fields like interfaith world and religious and um uh you know indigenous justice reconciliation sort of thing, where we try we're trying moving from um one sort of so-called um, barrier to another, over one barrier to another, and trying to help that sort of richer understanding. So, and then eventually, I've you know been able to make this journey between um, the assigned male world I was in into the into the you know into a female one. And now, of course, it's much even more exciting with um, you know in terms of um, that uh, finding. Um, spiritual growth because we're now beyond those binaries a little bit as well, which um, churches um, sort of very slowly recognising non-binary people and so on. 
but you know offering that because ultimately the spiritual search is really you know who who are we what are we here for what are we you know and how do we express ourselves and that sort of thing where's the healthy way of doing that so that's really what i've been in and and that's what i mean this is why queer people wonderful gift if if you know faith communities would would hear us because we um you know we, we we've got perspectives that need to enrich them as well as the rest of humanity if, if only they could get off their high horses and and their control sort of um and fear obsessions i think I saw on social media that you welcomed Dave Sharma's comments about the pending religious discrimination bill federally. Um, you must be hoping his federal colleagues will listen. Yes. Well, I think that's a really hopeful sign. And um, I think Warren Ench and a few other folk are sort of starting to speak up. But I think Dave will be in Parliament, hopefully. I mean, I think Warren's stepping down, isn't he? But, I mean, once you get that break in, is that, I mean, the thing is, this, this legislation meant to be Mark Latham stuff or the stuff that, the federal government sort of sponsoring. I mean, it's no good for anyone. Um, I mean, I read recently, you know, this week with what Rodney Croom was saying, which is quite right, is that is this not just an attack on um, LGBTIQ people? It's an attack on all kinds of people. And it's going completely the wrong direction. said, so, you know, we as queer community have got a lot to, to be part of building a better Australia out of this um, virus pandemic thing. You know, what sort of a world do we actually want to live in? And, and it's one that, in, you know, recognises all the gifts of everyone. So that's really encouraging if, if, if sections of, I mean, there are lots of liberals, aren't there? And maybe some nationals as well that, are, you know, don't actually agree with this. It's a bit like a lot of Christians who sort of got to keep their heads down. They need to start breaking ranks. You know, it would be great if more Christian allies were to break ranks and say, this really isn't going to help anybody. Um but what we need to concentrate on is uh, building a new, you know, better, just, uh, more open society for everyone that recognises, you know, as, yeah, the variety of gifts that we bring, not just our differences, you know, as a sort of a, a challenge. Because there are challenges, obviously, between different groups. But but if we look at them a bit more positively, you know, we'd be in a much better position. But where where you've got politicians trying to play people at wedge, play wedge politics, try and divide people, and Latham is one of the worst in New South Wales particularly, you know, trying to build his base by um, building fear and vision. Um, well, we want a bit, we need a different politics and it needs a different spirituality as well. So that's part of what I'm about, I think. Josephine Inkman, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you on 3CR today. Thank you so much. Thank you for your insights. Cheers. God bless. The wonderful Josephine Inkpen there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's Marsha Hines.
wonderful Marsha Hines there. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Ros Bellamy is an author who's about to publish a new memoir called Mood, and they join us on the line. Ros, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's so exciting about Mood. I was absolutely delighted when I heard that Wakefield Press was publishing it. What's it all about? Thank you. I'm so excited too. Um, It's a memoir about a few different things. Uh, One is about my experiences with mental illness. um, And also it explores queerness, um, gender diversity, and my Jewish identity as well. Just kind of looking at the way those different aspects of who I am overlap and play out together and um, kind of also looking at some bigger societal stuff as well, like some of the um, the barriers and, you know, just structures that we come up against when we're trying to manage ourselves and live well. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about those systemic, you know, barriers and structures. Yeah. So um, in the book, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of my privilege and as I go through my journey, um, you know, seeing different psychiatrists, having some pretty bad experiences with some of them along the way, um, I realise, you know, I'm very lucky and able to do that and keep paying, you know, these exorbitant first consult fees when one psychiatrist doesn't work out and go to another. And along the way, I kind of think, what about those who can't do that? Like, what happens to them? Which facilities do they end up in? Um, and just kind of acknowledging the stuff along the way that's made my journey easier, but it's still been a rough journey. And so looking at that and from that kind of very privileged perspective, kind of questioning, I guess, as a society, like what we're meant to do long term, um, particularly, you know, it's hard not to go political in this topic, but with a current government that just keeps cutting things like Medicare essential services. And um, so just really worrying about people that aren't as fortunate as well as those who are who still struggle because, yeah, mental health care in Australia, like there's a lot there that needs to be addressed. And you intersect that with your non-binary and your Jewish identity as well. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so um, I guess the Jewish population in Australia is pretty tiny. Um, filling in the census recently, I, I was reminded of that when, you know, Judaism isn't even listed as one of the religions. You have to kind of fill in the other box. Um, and so... I have, a, you know, a great Jewish queer community um, that means a lot to me in Australia and in other parts of the world. Um, but we are small and a little kind of, um, there's, there's a lot that we all go through. And obviously we all have different experiences. But one thing that we keep coming up against is how hard most of us found it to either, you know, celebrate being a Jewish person, celebrate being a queer or trans, or, you know, gender diverse person, and how hard it's been to put those two parts of who we are together. And they just, we constantly come up against these things where you fit into one or the other, and it's really hard to have both parts present. Gee, it really sounds like mood doesn't shy away from the politics of of systemic (laughs) barriers. It doesn't. Of course, you're the online editor of Archer magazine. It's a very political publication. Um, How has that kind of helped you to write mood, this memoir? And um, I guess working online, I get to work with so many writers, some very experienced and some more emerging, um, which has been a really great journey because everyone, depending, regardless of how much they've published, um, some really strong voices, you know, come out of new writers uh, that need to be heard. And at, at Archer, part of our style is that we publish first-person narratives um, about a range of topics. And working with other writers to help them 
you know, really clarify what they want to say. Um, and sometimes by the end of the publishing process or the editing process together, some of the writers, you know, say to me that they really appreciate the input because it helped them work out something that they really needed to articulate. But perhaps when they pitch the piece, they weren't ready to say. And so seeing what that process is like for them and supporting others with that has definitely helped me with my own writing. And the, the original versions of this manuscript were, you know, maybe a skeleton of what it is now or less. And it's really like putting the meat on those bones has been quite a challenging process. And it's involved a lot of people who have supported me along the way and working with some amazing kind of mentors um, that's helped me work out what it was that I really needed to say and why I needed to do it. And, of course, putting the bones on it, that was really helped, I guess, by your time online recently with our Tin House, which is a yeah. wonderful organisation in Portland, Oregon. Uh, what could you tell us about, about what you did with them? Yeah, um, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, if you know, in a pandemic, we can't leave Australia at the moment and I could, there's no way I could have gone in person. So when it was announced that this year they'd be doing it online again, I was thrilled. A lot of the Americans weren't and they wished they were gathering in person. Um, but I feel like, you know, I really got to benefit. I turned my time zone upside down for the week and attended workshops from 1am till pretty much 5am, had a quick sleep and then went to some more. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting experience from that perspective. But an amazing organisation. Every writer who spoke like at readings or gave a lecture or was in conversation with another writer, every moment it was, you just wanted to write down every single thing they said because everything they said just felt like the most brilliant and articulate and um, just inspiring and challenging thing I've ever heard. So, yeah, I just got so much out of it and I'm going to continue coming back to it again and again. So what can you tell us about Tin House? It's quite an extraordinary organisation. Yeah, um, I mean, I think one of the things that really stood out particularly this year, um, so they, they pub, they're a publisher in the US and they publish some really incredible work um, that's worth checking out in itself. Um, they also run this workshop and they also run fellowships for writers as well. Um, and the thing that really stood out to me this year was just how much of their faculty of writers were uh, writers of colour, um, there are Indigenous writers and queer and trans writers and just in a way where that was just so, like, it was, it was most of the writers, I would say. Like, it was very rare to have one that wasn't in one of those categories. And just the feeling of camaraderie and solidarity and I, I can't even explain it. Like, this, you know how sometimes in society, like, at the moment you hear some pushback against the diversity um, that's currently coming in finally into publishing. Um, and this was a place where just every bit of it was just so incredible. What they were saying and their writing was so powerful. But it was like, where have these voices been? I mean, they've been out there. They've been writing. They just perhaps weren't meeting audiences the way they should have been before. But now these people are on, you know, Obama's summer reading list and, um, you know, Oprah's and, oh, and they're getting out there and people are like finally reading this in larger numbers. And so I think one of the things that I really came away hoping was that in Australia we'll continue doing the same thing too and that there won't be so much of that kind of pushback of, oh, you know, all the prizes are being dominated by women this year and things like that. It just didn't feel like that at all. It just felt like a celebration of the difference of who we all were as writers. Of course, Tin House is based in Portland, Oregon. It's an extraordinary hub of activism there. Uh, what mm -hmm. kind of insights did you get about the activism that's been happening in Portland and the mutual aid over the last 12 months? It's been quite an extraordinary place. 
amazing. Um, it was absolutely amazing hearing about that from writers, either those based in Portland or some had travelled there last year and this year. Even though the even though the conference was held online, they just went there for it. And so some of them were there while George Floyd's, you know, the, the protests were happening about his death. Um, and many of them who I spoke to were, have been involved in mutual aid efforts and fundraising and peer support. Um, and they're just doing so much across so many areas. There's racial justice. Um, there's stuff around avoiding overdoses, you know, while the weather is so hot and ensuring that um, adequate water, but also like Narcan gets out to communities to avoid overdoses. Um, there's things like dealing with housing. Um, sort of, it, It's such a wide cross-section of what they do and what community do for each other um, that it's it was just really stunning to see. And I, I know a lot of that was happening in Melbourne during COVID as well. Um, but just speaking to people about what's going on there, just, you know, even just them looking out their window, there's just so much happening. And um, just such a sense of, you know, when the government does something, there's such a response to it. Then there's also, as well as that activism, there's that ensuring that the community's needs are being met and people, you know, without housing, have their needs met and sort of making sure that every member of the community as much as possible is taken care of. Yeah, I mean, they had that extraordinary situation in Portland where, you know, Trump, of course, had, you know, vigilantes from various government departments, you know, patrolling the yeah. streets, you know, pulling people into cars. Yeah. Uh, and you've had months and months and months of just activism there and sit-ins and what an extraordinary place. It must have given you so many insights about queer act activism beyond, you know, for us here in it Melbourne. Really did. Yeah, I mean, it made me wish I could be there. Obviously, we can't at the moment, but just hearing about it, I went to Portland years ago now, um, but just hearing about where the community is at at the moment, definitely so many ideas and, you know, even workshopping my piece with people in the class. Um, we were in small groups and so people in my workshop were saying things in relation to some of those political issues and systemic things that I talk about and just talking about, you know, how to challenge some of that societal stuff because obviously in the US they've got a horrible situation with healthcare um, and just their approach because of, you know, inadequate government policy um, is that mutual aid and peer support sort of approach and framework and it was absolutely inspiring. There's a lot that I want to kind of bring into my writing and my activism. Wow. So what I know Mood hasn't been published yet, but it will be published soon. Uh, first of all, tell us when it's going to be out and then what are you thinking of next for your for your subsequent writing? Yeah, um, so it should be out, um, we've sort of said late next year, but um, hopefully around the September kind of mark would be great. I'm really excited. I've got people kind of reaching out going, when can I get a copy? So um, very keen to, you know, get my revisions back to my editor and get that all underway. Um, and I am at work on a second book, which is a novel. Um, then it's kind of loosely based on my great-grandfather's experiences. Um, he was exiled to Siberia under Stalin, um, and so he was in a gulag um, or a labour camp, and I kind of take creative licence and just go with that in a contemporary setting um, and explore issues around like family, um, queer identity, a whole bunch of other things. Wow. And having a bit of fun moving into the fiction space. Wow, what a rich kind of intergenerational history you've got to draw on. That's incredible. <laughs> I do, I do, I know. Yeah, I have his diary as well. And, yeah, just the family history is incredible. And so just making sure, you know, I'm being respectful to it. And, yeah, when I, when I kind of draw on it in my practice. Wow, so you've got, you've got their diary. What can you tell us about some of the stuff that's in it? I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, um, I mean, the thing at the moment is it's 
so it's written in Yiddish and um, will, will require like a proper translation. It's only been read loosely because, you know, there aren't a huge amount of Yiddish speakers around. And at the moment, I've got this sense of protectiveness towards it because it's been, you know, entrusted to me uh, by family. And so it's kind of got that thing where I'm, I'm weighing up. I want to know what's in it and I want to use that. And as a, as a nosy writer, you know, I'm so into that. And then the other side as well is like, you know, the sacredness of the diary and what the diary means, you know, for me as a closeted queer, what a diary meant to me. And, um, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff there that I'm sure over the next year I'm going to be delving into. Fantastic. Well, Roz, it's absolutely awe-inspiring that you are flourishing so much as a writer. Uh, Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to chat. Ditto. Cheers. Okay, bye. The wonderful Roz Bellamy there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Here are the Black Sorrows.
There with his classic When You Are Mine, you are an in your face on 3CR with James. Or well, Liam Elphick is an associate lecturer in law at Monash University and a board member of the Victorian Pride Lobby, and he joins us on the line. Liam, welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much, James. It's great to have you on board. Wow, the lobby has been so busy over the last few months. Of course, you're a recent board member. Your research skills and legal skills must have come in handy so much. Tell us about some of the great campaigns the lobby's been working on. Yes, it's, uh, it's so fantastic to be part of the lobby and doing some fantastic work at the moment. Um, I'm just so thankful to be part of such a wonderful group of advocates for the community. Um, the, probably the most important thing we've been doing is around our Rainbow Pledge campaign, so supporting local governments to foster a culture that's inclusive and responsive to LGBTIQ Victorians. Um, so every week now, it seems like we have a new council who's pledging to different initiatives, including uh, creating LGBTIQ advisory committees, action plans, flying the rainbow flag for Ida Hobbit and the trans flag for the trans day visibility, um, and obtaining rainbow stick accreditation for Rainbow Health Victoria. So it's fantastic to see a lot of the local councils get on board with that. Uh, and we've recently also been awarded uh, a Globe Community Grant to further our work in that space. Uh, we've also got a ton of submissions going on to different sort of reforms happening around Australia. So the the sexual harassment respect at work reforms um, at the federal level and the Mental Health and Wellbeing Act reforms in Victoria as well. So it's a, it's a great time to be part of the lobby and contributing to that work. And, of course, your area of expertise in the law is anti-discrimination. Uh, that must be so helpful. What are some of the anti-discrimination, you know, uh, provisions in Victoria that need some work? Yeah, there's a lot of work to do in Victoria. I suppose uh, the biggest concern at the moment is the, the, the scope of the religious exemptions here. Uh, so there, as far as Australia goes, there are really wide religious exemptions to the LGBTIQ discrimination protections in Victoria. Um, that can obviously cause problems because it gives uh, a right to religious schools and religious individuals to discriminate against queer people here. Uh, so I'd love to see those uh, removed or narrowed in, in coming months and years. Um, and you, uh, listeners might also know there's been a recent review of vilification laws and hate speech laws in Victoria and really interested in seeing some stronger protections for queer people here because currently it's not unlawful to vilify on the basis um, of someone's LGBTIQ status. Uh, it's only race and religion that we ban vilification for, so very keen to see that protection extended to our community. Gee, it sounds like the ramifications of the religious discrimination bill, if the previous draft exposure bill is any indication of what we're in store for, will have huge ramifications here in Victoria. Yes, yeah. The the, the federal religious discrimination bill is probably my biggest concern at the moment as a queer advocate, um, as a queer person. Uh, it's certainly concerning to see how far it's gone in the first two exposure drafts. We don't really know when or if it's going to come back this year, uh, but there are a range of provisions in that bill that, that really concern me and, and uh, might override existing protections we have for queer people. So um, lots of work going on in the background to try and make sure that the, the bill is uh, scaled back a little bit and that it does what it's intended to do, which is just to protect people from being discriminated against on the basis of their religion. I think a lot of us, most of us, should get on board with the idea that someone shouldn't be sacked from their job for being um, Jewish or Muslim or even atheist, for instance. But this bill goes way beyond that, and, and that's the biggest concern. It sounds like, though, in Victoria that um, religious organisations already have quite a bit of legal protection to discriminate. Can you kind of elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, effectively what our laws say is, uh, in Victoria as a general proposition is you can't discriminate against people on the basis of, let's say, their sexuality. 
um, in certain areas like education, employment, provision of goods and services to use a sort of gay wedding cake uh, cake example that was the rage uh, several years ago. And then we have these exceptions that, that come along and say, actually, for certain religious bodies and certain religious individuals, those provisions don't actually apply. They can actually discriminate if they're acting in accordance with their religious beliefs. Um, so, you know, the, the right to religious freedom is an important one, but it should never impede uh, everyone else's right to equality and to non-discrimination. Um, so we're keen to see those wound back to make sure that queer people aren't discriminated against. We don't want to see uh, gay and trans kids expelled from schools. We don't want to see gay and trans teachers sacked from schools. And we've seen examples of that in other jurisdictions in Australia, especially Western Australia, in the last few years, especially post-marriage equality. So um, the, the exemptions in Victoria are pretty broad. The, the potential provisions in the Religious Discrimination Bill are even broader, and I think that's, that's my concern. Yeah, it sounds like the Religious Discrimination Bill isn't really about you know, religious protection in terms of what we've seen with the previous versions. It's more about giving people a licence to discriminate against minorities. Yeah, we, we often use the sword and shield analogy. Um, discrimination laws are meant to be a shield. They're meant to protect you from discrimination uh, to ensure that you have as much a right as everyone else to go about your life and not have that sort of unfair or adverse treatment against you on the basis of being LGBTIQ. Uh, so most discrimination laws, in fact, all of them in Australia really just do this. They just protect people. The difference with the religious discrimination bill is it hands a sword to, to certain religious groups, to certain religious individuals, to actually override other protections. Um, so, for instance, there's one there's one provision that, that's probably of most concern called the statement of belief provision. And what it says is if, if someone's sort of making a statement of belief and acting on that, um, then they can't actually be sued for any discrimination under any Australian discrimination laws, including in Victoria. So that's a really new provision. It's not something we've ever seen in the 45, 50 years of Australian discrimination laws. There are, there are some really good parts of the Religious Discrimination Bill on a shield level. You know, if, if it was just wound back to that, I think uh, almost all Australians would support it. But unfortunately, it's gone way beyond that now. And, and that's really problematic, especially for queer communities. Yeah, it sounds like religion's being really weaponised and politicised, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that would be um, uh, a fair assessment of where the bill is at right now. I mean, at a fundamental level, the bill has a lot of merit, and I think most of us are keen to see people protected. Um, But to the extent to which it's then gone further and there's a sword being handed to certain groups, that's obviously not something we would like to see. It sounds like your life experience as a queer person and a gay man has given you a wonderful kind of, you know, series of insights when it comes to interpreting the law and kind of, you know, um, really giving insights for your students to help them learn about it. Yeah, I think it's really important as a teacher um, to embed this sort of learning um, in our law schools that uh, laws are not neutral. They have really significant effects on a whole range of people and especially on marginalised communities. Um, and, and thinking about the law with that lens and thinking about the law with our own personal perspectives and lived experiences is really important. And we should have that inclusive perspective about all people. You know, I happen to be gay, so obviously that's the perspective of mine, but I'm keen for students to get um, a range of different perspectives and groups uh, that they can hear from. It's funny because a lot of people say, you know, that don't necessarily have much life experience with the queer community that, oh, now that we've got marriage equality, you know, what more do you need? But really there's so much more, isn't there? 
Yeah, and I think um, considering the, the widespread prevalence of discrimination and vilification and harassment of LGBTIQ people in Australia still to this day, obviously there's more work that needs to be done um, to improve on that. You know, there's a lot of other work we're doing through the lobby on uh, banking and mental health and other reforms that, that we think are really important still. Marriage equality is a huge step um, in the right direction, obviously, uh, but there are still particular legal reforms that need to be made to really ensure that we have um, as much of a right to participate in society as everyone else does. Yeah, tell us a bit more about mental health and what needs to be done under the law here in Victoria, in your view. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know where to start because um, the Royal Commission, uh, the Mental Health Royal Commission in Victoria, um, has come up with a range of recommendations that I think are important here um, for a system that I think the the government has, has quite clearly described as broken. Uh, we're sort of working on our submissions on that at the moment and we'll put out some, some positions on that. But most importantly, we're keen to see a focus on LGBTIQ mental health. Obviously, mental health outcomes for queer people um, are, are, are quite uh, problematic at the moment, especially in the context of the pandemic and the worsening mental health for so many of us in the last 18 months. So we're keen to see a, a, an LGBTIQ framing and lens on that and an understanding of particular problems for um, our communities. What are some of the key recommendations from the Royal Commission that particularly pertain to the queer community? Yeah, I think uh, funding is probably one of the most important things. Um, the the biggest problem we've had historically is actually securing funding for specific queer initiatives as opposed to mental health initiatives that just happen to include us. So um, the funding the funding side of recommendations, I think, is one that uh, certainly I'm most keen to see adopted and to see uh, organisations in Victoria which have a role to play in queer mental health funded to do so, rather than just sort of other organisations getting funding and including us in in their, in their purview, I think the, the more money we can get to queer-specific organisations who have experience, um, especially with our, our own lived experiences, the, the better that would be. On a lighter matter, uh, it was just wonderful seeing your comments on social media after Tom Daly won the gold in the 10-metre synchronised uh, uh, platform uh, in the Olympics uh, with Maddie Hall, uh, with Maddie Lee, I think, actually. What can you tell us about, about how that affected you? Yeah, um, I've, I've always been a, a gay man who loves sport, which is sometimes a bit of a taboo in our community. Um, so Tom Daly is pretty much the same age as me and came out in the same year in 2013. Um, and sort of ever since that moment, I've really followed his career closely. And to me, he's just such a, a source of inspiration for our community in an area of life that hasn't, hasn't often, hasn't always and still isn't fully inclusive of queer people. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in, in sporting environments uh, previously myself and I think just seeing someone who is so high profile and quite clearly so successful as an Olympic gold medalist um, use that platform to advocate for our community and uh, for the important things that we need to see change is just uh, not just inspirational to me but pretty emotional. So to see him uh, do that the other day to achieve on that high level and then in the press conference to talk about how it was something he never thought he would be able to do 
as a gay man, um, really brought a tear to my eye and I'm sure many others around the world. So it's, it's fantastic to have him um, competing at such a high level. Absolutely. And what a great champion as well was Erica Sullivan from the US who came second in the 1500 freestyle. And just how she said afterwards, uh, I'm multicultural, I'm queer, I'm a lot of minorities, and then started talking to the Japanese media in Japanese because, of course, her mother's Japanese. What a great ambassador for the queer community she was as well. Absolutely. And I think it's just, it's, um, it's so heartening to see more and more people, uh, joining this sort of groundswell in support, uh, in sport, sorry. I know that, uh, Proud to Play, an organisation I used to chair the board at, and Pride in Sport has done some fantastic work in Australia, um, to sort of improve visibility and experiences of LGBTIQ people in sport. And I think, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing so many high profile athletes, uh, at these, you know, phenomenally high levels at the Olympics, for instance, uh, say what they're saying and represent the community in the way they're representing and giving us all that, that visibility is fantastic. As they always say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it's, it's great that it's happening um, so much now. Liam Elphick, we are out of time. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on In Your Face. Thanks so much, James. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.